Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, Phil Sansom here. Listener, are you one of the many people who take ACE inhibitors or ARBs to treat high blood pressure or to help with heart issues or diabetes? In the UK, this should be about one in seven of you because these are some of the most common prescription drugs out there. And recently, people have been worried that they might make a coronavirus infection worse. The link between them is a thing that's inside everyone's bodies called ACE2. On today's show, meet ACE2, the protein in the spotlight, the bastion of our defenses that's become the very breach in our walls. Protector turned betrayer. This is Naked Genetics. It's important to say first that there's no evidence at all that either ACE inhibitors or ARBs put you at more risk of coronavirus. And in fact, there's some evidence that they even help you. I don't want to leave that issue hanging. And you can hear why they might help later in the show. But before that, let's dive into what all this stuff actually is. I want to introduce you to a big system of hormones in our bodies that controls blood pressure called the renin-angiotensin system. It sounds complicated, but the crucial parts are this hormone called angiotensin and some enzymes that convert it, aka angiotensin-converting enzymes, ACEs. One of the people who first discovered a lot of this is Austrian researcher Joseph Penninger, and he explained it to me in more detail. There's this system called the renin-angiotensin system, and this system, for instance, regulates our blood pressure, it regulates our heart functions, our kidneys, It's one of the most fundamental systems for our basic physiology. And there are two enzymes which regulate this, ACE and ACE2. ACE constricting blood vessels and ACE2 does the opposite. It opens the blood vessels and keeps us healthy, keeps multiple of our organs healthy. Can you help me picture what it kind of looks like? Yes, so the ACE2 basically is produced inside the cells and then it goes to the surface of the cells. Parts of it is still in the cell. The business end is outside of the cell. It sits on many, many tissues because the system has multiple functions in our body. Why do viruses come into all this? So the viruses came into this because after we had found it, then we found a totally novel system that ACE2 actually protects against lung failure. At this time, when we start working on this, basically built an ICU for mice, which took us years to do. Did you consider calling it a mice CU? That's a great idea, mice CU. (laughs) (laughs) It actually is. So we built a mice CU and found, to our surprise, that ACE2, like in the heart, is this good guy without ACE2 blood vessels started to leak. The whole lung became full with water, full of inflammation. And then a group in Boston said that ACE2 could be a candidate receptor for the first SARS virus. It basically clicked because if ACE2 protects from lung injury and the SARS virus causes a very severe lung disease, maybe the two uh, fit together. 
What exactly is the relationship between these viruses and the ACE2? Is, is the ACE2 the thing the viruses are attacking? ACE2 is the door into our body for the viruses. The virus can only live if it enters our cells in our body. And to enter the cells in our body, it needs a gate. ACE2 is the essential entry gate for the first and now the second SARS coronavirus. Are you saying that this is the reason that these coronaviruses do the damage that they do? Because they're using this ACE2, which ordinarily would help against lung infection? Correct. It's a really uh, evil, you know, there's no morals for viruses, but it's a real evil virus to hit one of our essential protective systems. And when they hit that gate, do they also sort of use it up? Exactly. So they don't just open it, they actually take the gate with them inside the house. And that's why we believe these two particular viruses became so dangerous. So you're saying there's kind of this double whammy of both the damage inside the cell and the damage you get from losing this helpful ACE2, which is sort of why this coronavirus has been such a problem. Correct. This double whammy. And because the gate doubles as a good guy in our body. You mentioned that ACE2 um, does all this stuff to stop you getting, for example, high blood pressure. If um, the coronavirus is, is getting rid of that, are, are we seeing patients with the coronavirus who have got you know, blood pressure issues or something like that? Yeah, what's really interesting is you know, if, if you look at the cases people who died, unfortunately, of COVID-19. Most of them have actually had a disease before. And the diseases they had before are diabetes, which affects the blood vessels, uh, cardiovascular diseases, hypertension. Exactly where ACE2 is, has actually a, a critical role. It's very suggestive. And now it turns out in the later stage of COVID-19, there's this rampant infection of more or less old blood vessels. So it does explain a lot. Joseph Penninger, currently head of life sciences at the University of British Columbia, but right now stuck in Austria until flights resume. As Joseph explains, ACE2 is the doorway that the virus uses to get into our cells. But not everyone's cells have the same number of doors, so to speak. To find out what this means, I got in touch with another biologist who's long researched ACE2. And then I made her wander around her house, trying to find the best possible sound quality. I'm Patricia Gallagher. I'm a professor in the Hypertension Research Center at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And I have to say, you're sounding pretty good right now. Where in your house are you? I'm in a closet. You have put me in the closet. I feel bad when you put it like that. <laughs> That's all right. So tell me about ACE2. The primary functions of ACE2 is to maintain the proper balance between two hormones, angiotensin 2 and angiotensin 1 to 7. Now, these two hormones are coursing through your body as we speak. Angiotensin 2 constricts or narrows blood vessels, while angiotensin 1 to 7 dilates or opens blood vessels up. That's kind of a funky naming system. Why is an angiotensin 2 and angiotensin 3? Well, angiotensin 2 is eight amino acids long, and ACE2 cleaves one of those amino acids to produce angiotensin 1 to 7. Oh, okay. Angiotensin 2 also promotes inflammation. 
while angiotensin 1 to 7 has anti-inflammatory properties. ACE2 ensures that the levels of these two hormones are balanced so there's proper defense against invaders and so that your blood pressure is not too high or too low. So it's kind of a yin and yang thing. How important is it in the grand scheme of your body? Well, we think of ACE2 and angiotensin 1 to 7 as part of a pathway that protects against chronic diseases such as hypertension, heart failure, cardiovascular and lung disease, and diabetes. SARS and COVID have hijacked this essential protein as their host receptor and in the process wreak havoc in the patient. Does that mean then that if you reduce the amount of this ACE2 that you have, that might protect you against the coronavirus? Well, it's a complicated issue. Before or in the initial stage of infection, that might be a good thing. But later on, when you've got that severe pneumonia, high levels of systemic inflammation, increase in ACE2 may be a good idea. So you're saying that even though it's what the virus uses to get into you, it's still useful to have when you've got the virus because it does all these good things. In the latter stages, definitely, I would think high levels of ACE2 may be a good thing. And there are actually clinical trials right now looking at drugs that cause an increase in ACE2 to give to patients in the latter stages of the disease. Now, do different people naturally have different amounts of ACE2 to start with? There's a lot of data accumulating now on ACE2 levels. There are studies showing that Asians, particularly Asian females, have high levels of ACE2 compared to other ethnicities. Men have higher levels of ACE2 than women. ACE2 also increases as we age. This increase in ACE2 with age may in part explain why COVID-19 has such devastating effects in patients over 60. But also, these patients tend to have chronic disease. This is a complicated process. Patricia Gallagher there from Wake Forest School of Medicine in North Carolina, explaining why it's so unclear whether more ACE2 helps people with coronavirus or hurts them. We've heard about how ACE2 is sort of the way in for the coronavirus, but there's a crucial distinction between that protein, ACE2, the star of today's show, and ACE, as in ACE inhibitors. Both first and foremost seem to affect blood pressure, but in opposite ways. Let's take a look now at ACE, the one without the two. Hugh Montgomery is an intensive care specialist at University College London, and he spent a long time trying to understand what ACE does, what ACE inhibitors might do, and what role the genetics seem to play in all this. We all have two ACE genes, and we can have one of two flavours. One's known as the I, or insertion variant, which has got a tiny little extra chunk of DNA in it, and one's called the deletion or D variant, which has that little bit missing. That changes how much of this protein the gene makes, which is called ACE. So this this isn't something that breaks the gene and stops it from doing stuff. This just changes what happens. That's right. Essentially, it, it changes how much of this active protein you've got. And for a long time, we thought the only reason this system existed was to control your blood pressure. And for that very reason, 
a bunch of drugs are made. These are called ACE inhibitors, and they lower the amount of ACE activity, and that lowers blood pressure. And these drugs are widely used now. But it is true that this turns out not just to be something that regulates blood pressure, but it regulates the growth of cells, and it also regulates their metabolism. UDDs in the audience, a bit like me, are likely to find that you can stack muscle on very easily with training, whereas the II people, the low ACE activity people, are very much better, generally speaking, at endurance. The I version of the gene is much more common in long-distance runners, and the D version is much more common in powerlifters and rowers, for instance. What's the version that's really, really good at sitting down for long periods of time? Well, do you know what? There are <laughs> even genes that influence whether you want to sit on your rear end and watch uh, Netflix all day. I'd better thank Joe Wicks now for helping me overcome that stuff. <laughs> good. Now, when it comes to the coronavirus, this is sort of related, right? Because ACE acts as part of the same system as the thing that the virus attaches onto. Yeah, so this is really exciting. We were doing some work with mountaineers. These people climb, of course, very high, and the higher you go, the less oxygen there is. And we found that the I version of the gene was very, very much more common, much, much more common even than in marathon runners. Having those same genes massively influenced your chance of surviving from severe lung injury. In fact, you were five times less likely to die, which is way beyond any impact on mortality I could have uh, as a competent and hardworking intensivist. So there are a couple of questions. The first of them is, if we just took this coronavirus set of patients with very bad lungs and low oxygen, would they benefit from us giving them an ACE inhibitor and lowering ACE levels? Would we find a similar reduction in mortality? We don't know, but the data are suggesting that it might. If we look at the distribution of the I and D versions of the ACE gene around the world, the places that have much more I versions of the gene do seem to have less severe disease with coronavirus. And secondly, there's a threefold reduction in mortality in people taking an ACE inhibitor or actually something that blocks the product base, this angiotensin 2. Now, that's not enough to prove the effect, but these data fit together to suggest that low ACE activity might work. And we think this may give us a potential treatment that works. In fact, we're just about to start those trials hopefully soon with using those very same cheap, effective drugs that treat blood pressure and heart failure. If there were no such trial and there were no other options, my money, were I betting, would be that the ACE inhibitor would work. But we're going to find out. This is all such a far cry for when people were worried that these drugs would make the condition worse. Yes, and of course, that was the first story. So when we first heard that ACE2 was the protein receptor for the spike protein of the coronavirus, we were all a bit anxious. Should we be stopping ACE inhibitors on all the patients? And as it turned out, we don't see any signal for harm at all. So if I was on an ACE inhibitor now listening to this podcast, I would continue to take it. Hugh Montgomery there from UCL, whose trial of ACE inhibitors is just getting underway. So we've learned that the gene you have for your ACE protein might change how badly you get hit by coronavirus. What about the gene for its cousin, the crucial protein that kicks off the infection, our star ACE2? That is after the break. Music in the program is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. 
Hello, sorry to butt in, Katie here from The Naked Scientists. Did you know we make other naked shows too? The fraction of all humanity who has actually gotten a chance to see their own brain is very tiny and you are welcomed to that club. So if you enjoy musing over the mind, reflecting on thought or frankly feel bamboozled by the brain, check out Naked Neuroscience. Well, my face hurts now, so yeah, let's go, it's spicy. <laughs> Don't go down into the creepy cellar yeah. and turn the light on. <laughs> exactly. Access the full archive via nakedscientist.com slash neuroscience or subscribe to Naked Neuroscience wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Naked Genetics. Scientists right now are still trying to work out what makes one person's coronavirus infection just a bad cough and another person's a life-threatening hospital visit. There's lots of theories relating to your age, sex, health, and more. But what about your genes, like the gene for ACE we discussed earlier? How much do they explain? And like some have theorized, could this be why certain minority ethnic groups seem to be disproportionately going to hospital with this disease? According to Ewan Burney, that is unlikely. He's director of the European Bioinformatics Institute, helping gather coronavirus patient DNA. Actually, most of the variation about whether you're infected with the virus will be due to your exposure. But some, perhaps, of whether you progress or whether in hospital you have a mild form of the disease or severe form of the disease, those may well have genetic factors contributing to the variation that we see. And do you have an idea for this coronavirus of how big a role genetics might play? No, we don't really. There's been some initial work using some twin studies that says that there's some evidence that there's going to be a genetic component. And our experience of of many other previous studies would argue there'll be some aspect. For me, I think in particular, between mild and severe disease is going to be our most fruitful area to look at. But we're not, we can't say that for sure. In many ways, one has to collect the data set and do the analysis before one can be sure. The very early genetic analysis is not showing much variance um, being contributed by genetics, but we just don't have the sample size to be sure that that's the full story. We need to wait until we have more cases coming through the system. If you do find something, what's the point? What can you actually do with that? Yeah. Potentially, it can point us to parts of the genome where different individuals in the population vary. And if we're lucky, that part of the genome is in a pathway that we've already got a drug for. That would be our best result. Now, if we find something in the genome that there isn't a drug, there is a possibility of making a new drug. That is a long, long road, though. A final possibility is that there are genetic components which are big enough that they really show the difference between different individuals in a way that we can actually use in terms of saying, well, you're, you're very much at risk and you're not. Now, I actually don't think that's going to be a likely outcome of the genetics. It tends to be that genetics is very complicated, but it is a possibility. If you do end up finding patterns, are they likely to be with, uh, you know, everyone or are they going to be patterns in specific groups of people or what? Human genetics is, is very mixed and very messy. And so they're likely to be weak and distributed across 
all humans on the planet. That's the way most human genetics works out. It's important to realize that although we, in society, we have a lot of casual use of self-identified ethnic groups. So if you're presented with a form where you're asked to tick who you are, whether you're a European-American or an African-American or a uh, white British or white Irish or, or these other terms, most people feel confident about ticking those boxes. That process of ticking boxes is less aligned to genetics than people's intuition thinks. So it's unlikely that there's going to be big differences between these self-identified ethnic groups. Now, you might be aware that it's, it's reasonably clear, both in the UK and the US, that many people in minority ethnic groups, African-Americans in, in the US and Afro-Caribbeans and South Asians in the UK seem to be disproportionately represented in hospitalizations of COVID-19. But what you have to remember is two things. Firstly, the biggest outbreaks are happening in dense urban city centers, London, uh, New York, and these places which have a much higher level of, of these groups. And secondly, many of the things that we know are involved with causing severe disease, such as type 2 diabetes and obesity, cardiovascular issues, are related to socioeconomic status, which is related to how much money you have. And that is distributed in a, in a very skewed way in our society. So I'm relatively confident that there is not a big genetic component explaining the observed differences we see of ethnic group labels with COVID-19. Ewan Burney from the European Bioinformatics Institute. Meanwhile, the evidence is starting to come in on whether host genetics, that is the genetics of human hosts, changes our response to coronavirus. Here in the UK, King's College London have rolled out a popular app called the COVID Symptom Tracker app, and they've recently released some of their findings using twins to figure out how big a role the genes play. Producer Katie Haler spoke to one of the team, Francis Williams, about what they found. We've done what's called a classical twin study in which you can compare symptoms among the twin pairs. Because we know that identical twins share 100% of their genetic material, while non-identical twins share on average 50%, we can compare between the identicals and non-identicals and work out roughly what the contribution is of genetic factors. And what symptoms specifically are you talking about? Cough, fever, delirium, loss of taste and smell, shortness of breath, chest pain, abdominal pain, diarrhoea, that sort of thing. All the commonest symptoms associated with many different viral illnesses. We could combine the symptoms in a mathematical model to determine the best combination of symptoms that predicts being positive on a, a test for the virus. So it's a combination of those symptoms, such as the loss of taste and smell and fever with persistent cough and fatigue, and age and sex are also in that model. And interestingly, that model has the highest heritability of all the symptoms that we looked at, 50%, which means that roughly 50% of the difference in expression of those symptoms is accounted for by genetic factors. What does that mean for an individual? Well, it's difficult to extrapolate to an individual because heritability is all about the group differences in the population, if you like. But I think what this is telling us 
is that while many people consider infections to be an entirely random event, in fact, it's not entirely random. It is to some extent influenced by the individual. And we know that many symptoms of viral illnesses actually occur because of the host immune system reacting to the presence of that virus rather than the damage that the virus itself causes directly. Do you think this could go any way to explain why some people seem to be relatively mildly affected, whereas other people are severely affected? We know that the people that end up with a major illness requiring hospitalisation often develop high levels of inflammatory proteins in the blood. And it may well be that what we're seeing in our study is reflecting the fact that somebody's genetic makeup can impact how their immune system responds to viral infection and whether or not it responds by making very high levels of those inflammatory markers. What's the value in understanding to what extent these symptoms or risks are heritable? Firstly, it's a better understanding of how genetic variation influences people's susceptibility to the disease. So it might be possible if we developed, for example, a test which would advise people better about their risk of developing COVID. So rather than just have a blanket rule about by age or by sex, everybody has to stay indoors, you could make it more uh, personalised. And the second big value, I think, for this app is being able to collect large volumes of data real time about how this infection is spreading across the country. Francis Williams there. The paper is what's called a preprint, which means it hasn't yet been evaluated by the academic peer review process. So take it with a pinch of salt, but it's still online available on MedArchive. Genetics in general, then, seems to do at least something. But what about more specifically the gene for the crucial protein, ACE2? Does variation in that ACE2 gene make the coronavirus see you as a great big bullseye? Or even the opposite, might it actually protect you? Medical geneticist William Gibson at the University of British Columbia has tried to find out using a big database of people's DNA called NOMAD. There's just over 141,000 people represented in the NOMAD database. And are you looking at this ACE2 gene, what it's like for all of those people? Uh, We did. Not every person had reliable data at every part of the gene Fortunately, the NOMAD database gives us data on the quality of each person's DNA sequencing at each specific site. So we were then able to look at the number of X chromosomes in both males and females that had reliable data at each of the sites that we were looking at. Oh, okay. So you've got all your people. You've got twice the number because all, all the women have two X chromosomes. And then you've whittled down to get all the ones that are definitely accurate. What differences did you find in this sort of final amount of data? In the final analysis, we found that there are differences in the ACE2 protein, and these differences seem to be distributed differently among different human populations and predicted to be at different levels between males and females. Talk me through this. What kind of variants can you get? You can get genetic variants that are predicted to stop the protein from being made. 
they either break the protein or they make a protein that's too small to do anything. You can also get variants that are predicted to change the shape of the protein, but not break it. So the protein likely works pretty well, and we call those missense variants. We're looking at a small number of the variants that are specifically predicted to bind the virus, as opposed to all of the missense variants overall. How many of, of these types of variants did you actually end up finding? Between 14 and 15 missense variants in the ACE2 protein that were predicted to bind the virus, some of them were predicted to bind the virus more tightly, and some of them were predicted to, bi- to bind the virus less tightly. How common are these differences uh, overall? Uncommon, but not unheard of. Among males of European descent, around 1 in 170 males would be predicted to have one of these variants. It's about 1 in 80 females. Interestingly enough, these variants were more frequent in individuals of Ashkenazi Jewish descent, and they seem to be less frequent among Latin Americans, South Asians, people of African descent, people of Finnish descent, and people of East Asian descent. Really? What does that mean? It's not entirely clear what it means. What we're looking into now is whether these variants actually affect susceptibility to disease and disease outcome. We're not sure about that yet. Did you find that, for example, the Ashkenazi Jewish population had more of the variants that bound the virus better or more of the variants that bound the virus worse or or neither? I confess we haven't actually split out the numbers that way, partly because we're not really sure how good our prediction software is. In other words, do the predictions that we make using the software actually correlate to actual binding of the protein or not? If they did, is there anything you could do about it? Theoretically, if someone were found to have a high susceptibility variant, then that would be very useful for them to know in terms of either self-isolating or, of course, for their healthcare practitioners. If they were found to then contract the virus, that's someone who would need quite carefully managed care. William Gibson from the University of British Columbia. Evidence on this subject is coming in all the time from different methods and sources. William Gibson back there used computer modeling only. And now a separate study from Finland's Karolinska Institute seems to show that common versions of the ACE2 gene don't actually affect much in the way of body traits like blood pressure, at least for people who are already healthy. Here's Serena Sana, one of the researchers. We found that none of the common genetic variation in this gene are associated with uh, physiological variation between individuals. So there's no impact in regulating cholesterol level or your uh, weight. Nothing at all? No. Not among all the 150 different measurements that we consider. How did you figure this out? So we looked at more than 30,000 volunteers. They all live in the north of the Netherlands. So we have genetic information of, of those individuals. So we looked at this ACA2 gene. And there are roughly 1,000 variants in that genes that are common, means they are present in at least one person every 100. 
we compare the different variation to their corresponding level of blood pressure or glucose or cholesterol and so on. If you found no associations, what's the most surprising? Were there any that you, you thought might be there that you just found nothing for? Well, the first question was, is this gene involved, for example, in blood pressure or glucose? Because we are seeing a lot of uh, coronavirus patients that also have hypertension or diabetes. But in reality, this was not. So if there is any uh, explanation for this, probably comes from other genes or from uh, some other factors. So out of all these, like a thousand different versions of this gene that a few people have, it doesn't seem to affect any of your physical stuff at all. Yes. What, what does this mean for people? This means that for the coronavirus infection, this gene is probably not having any role on the making symptoms worse in terms of hypertension and, uh, and diabetes. You've been talking about common variants specifically. Does that mean that there are rare ones that you didn't look at? Yes, correct. There are rare variants in these genes that we did not look because we looked at 30,000 volunteers, but for rare variants, so variants that are present in one every 10,000, we really didn't have enough numbers. So we did not look at this specific category of genetic variant, which might still play a role in infection. And usually rare variants in the genome have a higher impact than common variation. Serena Sanna from the Karolinska Institute, who has found no link between ACE2 variation and body traits. So time will tell if ACE2 variation makes you more or less susceptible to coronavirus. But at the moment, there don't seem to be any major effects. Meanwhile, our first guest, Joseph Penninger, is trying something different. He's testing whether a fake decoy version of ACE2 can trick the virus into avoiding our cells altogether. You can hear more about that work in his interview with Chris Smith, on our website, trynakedscientists.com slash COVID. That's it for Naked Genetics. Thanks to our guests, Joseph Penninger, Patricia Gallagher, Hugh Montgomery, Ewan Burney, Francis Williams, William Gibson, and Serena Sanna. If you've got any questions or comments, feel free to send in an email to phil at nakedscientists.com or seek us out on social media, although I'm not super good at using Twitter. I'm trying to get better. And until next time, I've been Phil Sanson. Goodbye.